0: section 30 of the life of samuel johnson volume 3 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the life of samuel johnson volume 3 by james boswell section 30 percy he pretends to give the natural history of northumberland and yet takes no notice of the immense number of trees planted there of late. Johnson. That, sir, has nothing to do with the natural history, that is civil history. A man who gives the natural history of the oak is not to tell how many oaks have been planted in this place or that. A man who gives the natural history of the cow is not to tell how many cows are milked at Islington. The animal is the same, whether milked in the park or at Islington. Percy. Pennant does not describe well. A carrier who goes along the side of Loch Lomond would describe it better. Johnson. I think he describes very well. Percy. I travelled after him. Johnson. And I travelled after him. Percy. But, my good friend, you are short-sighted, and do not see so well as I do. I wondered at Dr Percy's venturing thus. Dr Johnson said nothing at the time, but inflammable particles were collecting for a cloud to burst. In a little while dr percy said something more in disparagement of pennant johnson pointedly this is the resentment of a narrow mind because he did not find everything in northumberland percy feeling the stroke sir you may be as rude as you please johnson hold sir don't talk of rudeness Remember, sir, so you told me, puffing hard with passion, struggling for event. I was short-sighted. Footnote. When Reynolds painted his portrait, looking into the slit of his pen and holding it almost close to his eye, as was his custom, he felt displeased and told me he would not be known by posterity for his defects only let sir joshua do his worst i said that the picture in the room where we were talking represented sir joshua holding his ear in his hand to catch the sound he may paint himself as deaf if he chooses replied johnson but i will not be blinking sam end of footnote we have done with civility We are to be as rude as we please. Percy. Upon my honour, sir, I did not mean to be uncivil. Johnson. I cannot say so, sir, for I did mean to be uncivil, thinking you had been uncivil. Dr. Percy Rose ran up to him, and, taking him by the hand, assured him affectionately that his meaning had been misunderstood, upon which a reconciliation instantly took place. Johnson. My dear sir, I am willing you shall hang Pennant. Percy, resuming the former subject, Pennant complains that the helmet is not hung out to invite to the Hall of Hospitality. Footnote you look in vain for the helmet on the tower, the ancient signal of hospitality to the traveller, or for the grey-headed porter to conduct him to the hall of entertainment. Instead of the disinterested usher of the old times, he is attended by a valet to receive the fees of admittance. End of footnote. Now, I never heard that it was a Custom to hang out a helmet. Footnote: It certainly was a custom, as appears from the following passage in Pierce Forest. Faisait mettre au plus haut de Hostel un urn en signe que tous les gentilhommes et gentilfemmes entraient saliment en leur hostel comme en le propre. Kearney. End of footnote. Johnson. Hang him up, hang him up, Oswald, humouring the joke. Hang out with his skull instead of a helmet, and you may drink ale out of it in your hall of Odin. As he is your enemy, that will be truly ancient. That will be northern antiquities. Johnson. He is a Whig, sir, a sad dog. Smiling at his own violent expressions merely for political difference of opinion but he is the best traveller i ever read he observes more things than any one else does i could not help thinking that this was too high praise of a writer who had traversed a wide extent of country in such haste that he could put together only curt frittered fragments of his own and afterwards procured supplemental intelligence from parochial ministers and others not the best qualified or most impartial narrators whose ungenerous prejudice against the house of stuart glares in misrepresentation a writer who at best treats merely of superficial objects and shows no philosophical investigation of character and manners such as johnson has exhibited, in his masterly journey, over part of the same ground, and who, it should seem from a desire of ingratiating himself with the Scotch, has flattered the people of North Britain so inordinately, and with so little discrimination, that the judicious and candid amongst them must be disgusted, while they value more the plain, just, yet kindly report of Johnson having impartially censured mr pennant as a traveler in scotland let me allow him from authorities much better than mine his deserved praise as an able zoologist and let me also from my own understanding and feelings acknowledge the merit of his london Which, though said to be not quite accurate in some particulars, is one of the most pleasing topographical performances that ever appeared in any language. Mr. Pennant, like his countrymen in general, has the true spirit of a gentleman. Footnote He was a Welshman, end of footnote. As a proof of it, I shall quote from his London the passage in which he speaks of my illustrious friend. I must by no means omit bolt court to the long residence of Dr Samuel Johnson, a man of the strongest natural abilities, great learning, a most retentive memory of the deepest and most unaffected piety and morality, mingled with those numerous weaknesses and prejudices which his friends have kindly taken care to draw from their dread abode. Footnote. This is the common cant against faithful biography. Does the worthy gentleman mean that I, who was taught discrimination of character by Johnson, should have omitted his frailties, and in short have bedaubed him as the worthy gentleman has bedaubed Scotland? Boswell. End of, I brought on myself his transient anger by observing that in his tour in Scotland he once had long and woeful experience of oats being the food of men in Scotland as they were of horses in England. It was a national reflection unworthy of him and I shot my bolt. In return he gave me a tender hug. Conamore he also said of me, the dog is a Whig. I admired the virtues of Lord Russell and pitied his fall. I should have been a Whig at the Revolution. There have been periods since in which I should have been what I now am, a moderate Tory, a supporter, as far as my little influence extends, of a well-poised balance between crown and people but should the scale preponderate against the salus populi, that moment, may it be said, the dog's a wink. We had a calm after the storm, stayed the evening and supped and were pleasant and gay. But Dr Percy told me he was very uneasy at what had passed, for there was a gentleman there who was acquainted with the Northumberland family, to whom he hoped to have appeared more respectable by showing how intimate he was with Dr Johnson, and who might now, on the contrary, go away with an opinion to his disadvantage. He begged I would mention this to Dr Johnson, which I afterwards did. His observation upon it was, this comes of stratagem. Had he told me, that he wished to appear to advantage before that gentleman, he should have been at the top of the house all the time. He spoke of Dr Percy in the handsomest terms. Then, sir, said I, may I be allowed to suggest a mode by which you may effectually counteract any unfavourable report of what passed, I will write a letter to you upon the subject of the unlucky contest of that day, and you will be kind enough to put in writing, as an answer to that letter, what you have now said. And, as Lord Percy is to dine with us at General Paoli's soon, I will take an opportunity to read the correspondence in his Lordship's presence this friendly scheme was accordingly carried into execution without dr percy's knowledge johnson's letter placed dr percy's unquestionable merit in the fairest point of view and i contrived that lord percy should hear the correspondence by introducing it at general paoli's as an instance of dr johnson's kind disposition towards one whom his lordship was interested in thus every unfavourable impression was obviated that could possibly have been made on those by whom he wished most to be regarded i breakfasted the day after with him and informed him of my scheme and its happy completion for which he thanked me in the warmest terms and was highly delighted with Dr. Johnson's letter in his praise, of which I gave him a copy. He said, I would rather have this than degrees from all the universities in Europe. It will be for me and my children and grandchildren. Dr. Johnson, having afterwards asked me if I had given him a copy of it, and being told I had, was offended, and insisted that I should get it back, which I did. As, however, he did not desire me to destroy either the original or the copy, or forbid me to let it be seen, I think myself at liberty to apply to it his general declaration to me concerning his other letters that he did not choose they should be published in his lifetime, but had no objection to their appearing after his death. I shall therefore insert this kindly correspondence, having faithfully narrated the circumstances accompanying it. Footnote. Percy, it should seem, took offence later on. Craddock says, almost the last time i ever saw johnson it was in seventeen eighty four he said to me notwithstanding all the pains that dr farmer and i took to serve dr percy in regard to his ancient ballads he has left town for ireland without taking leave of either of us craddock adds that though percy was a most pleasing companion Yet there was a violence in his temper, which could not always be controlled. I was witness, he writes, to an entire separation between Percy and Goldsmith, about Rowley's, Chatterton's, poems. End of footnote. To Dr Samuel Johnson, my dear sir, I beg leave, to address you in behalf of our friend Dr Percy, who was much hurt by what you said to him that day we dined at his house, when, in the course of the dispute as to Pennant's merit as a traveller, you told Percy that he had the resentment of a narrow mind against Pennant, because he did not find everything in Northumberland. Percy is sensible, that you did not mean to injure him. But he is vexed to think that your behaviour to him upon that occasion may be interpreted as a proof that he is despised by you, which I know is not the case. I have told him that the charge of being narrow-minded was only as to the particular point in question, and that he had the merit of being a martyr to his noble family. Earl Percy is to dine with General Paoli next Friday, and I shall be sincerely glad to have it in my power to satisfy his lordship how well you think of Dr. Percy, who I find apprehends that your good opinion of him may be of very essential consequence, and who assures me that he has the highest respect and the warmest affection for you i have only to add that my suggesting this occasion for the exercise of your candour and generosity is altogether unknown to dr percy and proceeds from my good-will towards him and my persuasion that you will be happy to do him an essential kindness i am more and more my dear sir your most faithful and affectionate humble servant james boswell to james boswell esq sir the debate between dr percy and me is one of those foolish controversies which begin upon a question of which neither party cares how it is decided and which is nevertheless continued to acrimony by the vanity with which every man resists confutation footnote johnson writing of the uncertainty of friendship says a dispute begun in jest upon a subject which a moment before was on both sides regarded with careless indifference is continued by the desire of conquest till vanity kindles into rage and opposition rankles into enmity Against this hasty mischief I know not what security can be obtained. Men will be sometimes surprised into quarrels. End of footnote. Dr. Percy's warmth proceeded from a cause which perhaps does him more honour than he could have derived from juster criticism. His abhorrence of pennant proceeded from his opinion that Pennant had wantonly and indecently censured his patron. His anger made him resolve that, for having been once wrong, he never should be right. Pennant has much in his notions that I do not like, but still I think him a very intelligent traveller. If Percy is really offended, I am sorry, for he is a man whom I never knew to offend anyone. He is a man very willing to learn, and very able to teach. A man out of whose company I never go without having learned something. It is sure that he vexes me sometimes, but I am afraid it is by making me feel my own ignorance. So much extension of mind, and so much minute accuracy of inquiry, if you survey your whole circle of acquaintance, you will find so scarce, if you find it at all, that you will value Percy by comparison. Lord Hales is somewhat like him, but Lord Hales does not perhaps go beyond him in research, and I do not know that he equals him in elegance. Percy's attention to poetry has given him grace and splendour to his studies of antiquity. A mere antiquarian is a rugged being. Upon the whole you see that what I might say in sport or petulance to him is very consistent with full conviction of his merit. I am, dear sir, your most, etc. Samuel Johnson, April twenty third seventeen seventy eight. To the Reverend Dr. Percy, Northumberland House, Dear Sir, I wrote to Dr. Johnson on the subject of the Penantian controversy, and have received from him an answer which will delight you. I read it yesterday to Dr. Robertson at the Exhibition, and at dinner, to lord percy general oglethorpe etc who dined with us at general paoli's who was also a witness to the high testimony to your honour general paoli desires the favour of your company next tuesday to dinner to meet dr johnson if i can i will call on you to-day i am with sincere regard your most obedient humble servant james boswell south audley street april the twenty fifth footnote though the bishop of jemore kindly answered the letters which i wrote to him relative to dr johnson's early history yet in justice to him i think it proper to add that the account of the foregoing conversation and the subsequent transaction as well as some other conversations in which he is mentioned has been given to the public without previous communication with his Lordship, Boswell. This note is first given in the second edition, being added, no doubt, at the Bishop's request. End of footnote. On Monday, April 13th, I dined with Johnson at Mr Langton's, where were Dr Porteous, then Bishop of Chester, now of London, and Dr Stinton, he was at first in a very silent mood. Before dinner he said nothing but Pretty baby to one of the children. Langton said very well to me afterwards that he could repeat Johnson's conversation before dinner as Johnson had said that he could repeat a complete chapter of The Natural History of Iceland from the Danish of Horribo the whole of which was exactly thus chapter seventy two concerning snakes there are no snakes to be met with throughout the whole island footnote chapter forty two is still shorter concerning owls there are no owls of any kind in the whole island horrebow says in his preface i have followed mr anderson article by article declaring what is false in each a member of the icelandic literary society in a letter to the pall mall gazette dated may the third eighteen eighty three thus accounts for these chapters in seventeen forty six there was published at hamburg a small volume entitled Nachrichten von Island, Grönland und der Straße Davis. The Danish government, conceiving that its intentions were misrepresented by this work, procured a reply to be written by Niels Horebaugh. And this was published in seventeen fifty two under the title of Til Efterninger om Island in seventeen fifty eight an English translation appeared in London the object of the author was to answer all Anderson's charges and imputations this Horebaugh did categorically and hence come these chapters though it must be added that they owe their laconic celebrity to the English translator the author being rather profuse than otherwise in giving his predecessor a flat denial. End of footnote. At dinner, we talked of another mode in the newspapers of giving modern characters in sentences from the classics, and of the passage Parcus deorum cultur et infrequens in, in sanientistum tum sapientiae consultis ero Non retrosum velidare, atque iterare corgo relictos A fugitive from heaven and prayer, I mocked at all religious fear, Deep scienced in the mazy lore of mad philosophy. But now hoist sail and back my voyage plough To that blessed harbour which I left before. Francis. End of footnote being well applied to some Jennings, who, after having wandered in the wilds of infidelity, had returned to the Christian faith. Mr. Langton asked Johnson as to the propriety of sapientiae consultus. Johnson. Though consultus was primarily an adjective, like amicus, it came to be used as a substantive. So we have yours, consultus, a consulter in law. We talked of the styles of different painters, and how certainly a connoisseur could distinguish them. I asked if there was as clear a difference of styles in language as in painting, or even as in handwriting, so that the composition of every individual may be distinguished. Johnson Yes, those who have a style of eminent excellence, such as Dryden and Milton, can always be distinguished. I had no doubt of this, but what I wanted to know was whether there was really a peculiar style to every man whatever, as there is certainly a peculiar handwriting, a peculiar countenance, not widely different in many, yet always enough to be distinctive. Faccias non omnibus una neciversatamen. The bishop thought not, and said he supposed that many pieces in Dodsley's collection of poems, though all very pretty, had nothing appropriated in their style, and in that particular could not be at all distinguished Johnson Why, sir, I think every man whatever has a peculiar style, which may be discovered by nice examination and comparison with others, but a man must write a great deal to make his style obviously discernible. As logicians say, this appropriation of style is infinite in potestate, limited in actu. Footnote. Johnson says, the greater part of mankind have no character at all, have little that distinguishes them from others equally good or bad. It would seem to follow that the greater part of mankind have no style at all, for it is in character that style takes its spring. End of footnote. Mr. Topham Beauclair came in the evening, and he and Dr. Johnson and I stayed to supper. It was mentioned that Dr. Dodd had once wished to be a member of the Literary Club. Footnote. Dodd's wish to be received into our society was conveyed to us only by a whisper, and that being the case, all opposition to his admission became unnecessary. End of footnote. Johnson. I shall be sorry If any of our club were hanged i will not say but some of them deserve it beauclair supposing this to be aimed at persons for whom he had at that time a wonderful fancy which however did not last long was irritated and eagerly said you sir have a friend naming him who deserves to be hanged for he speaks behind their backs against those with whom he lives on the best terms, and attacks them in the newspapers. He certainly ought to be kicked. Footnote. The friend was Mr. Stevens. Garrick says that Stevens had written things in the newspapers against him that were slanderous, and then had assured him upon his word and honour that he had not written them, that he had later on bragged That he had written them, and had said that it was fun to vex me. Garrick adds, I was resolved to keep no terms with him, and would always treat him as such a pest of society merits from all men. Stevens, Dr Parr used to say, had only three friends, himself, Dr Farmer, and John Reed, so hateful. Was his character. He was one of the wisest, most learned, but most spiteful of men. Boswell had felt Stephen's ill nature, while he was carrying the life of Johnson through the press, at a time when he was suffering from the most woeful return of melancholy. He wrote to Malone, January the twenty-ninth, seventeen ninety-one stevens kindly tells me that i have over printed and that the curiosity about johnson is now only in our own circle february the 25th you must know that i am certainly informed that a certain person who delights in mischief has been depreciating my book so that i fear the sale of it may be very dubious a certain person was no doubt Stevens. End of footnote. Johnson, Sir, we all do this in some degree veniam petimus damusque vicisum. I own the indulgence such I give and take. Francis Horace, Ars Poetica. End of footnote. To be sure, It may be done so much that a man may deserve to be kicked. Beauclerc, He is very malignant. Johnson. No, sir, he is not malignant. He is mischievous, if you will. He would do no man an essential injury. He may indeed love to make sport of people by vexing their vanity. I, however, once knew an old gentleman who was absolutely malignant he really wished evil to others and rejoiced at it boswell the gentleman mr beauclerc against whom you are so violent is i know a man of good principles beauclerc then he does not wear them out in practice we grant although he had much wit he was very shy of using it as being loath to wear it out end of footnote dr johnson who as i have observed before delighted in discrimination of character and having a masterly knowledge of human nature was willing to take men as they are imperfect and with a mixture of good and bad qualities i suppose thought he had said enough in defence of his friend of whose merits notwithstanding his exceptional points he had a just value and added no more on the subject footnote among the sentiments which almost every man changes as he advances into years is the expectation of uniformity of character end of footnote end of section 30